Good morning, Southview. Happy Easter. Jesus is alive, and we are so excited that you're here worshiping with us today. Here are your big three announcements for the week. If you're interested in joining Southview and becoming a part of our family, we would love for you to join the membership class. They will begin next Sunday, April 16th, and run the 23rd and the 30th during the 930 service. We would love to have you join. If you would, please text the word MEMBER to our number, 910. 424-1298. Also coming up is one of my favorite Sundays, Baptism Sunday. If you have accepted Jesus as your Savior but have never been baptized, we would love to give you this opportunity to make your profession of faith public. Please text the word baptism to 910-424-1298. Those will take place on Sunday, May 21st during both services. And hey, parents, if you have never dedicated your child to the Lord, we would love to give you that opportunity on Mother's Day, Sunday, May 14th. If you will just simply text the word CHILD to our number 910-424-1298. And we encourage you to download the Southview Baptist Church app if you have not already done that. You can find it on iTunes or Google Play. This will allow you to see all the other announcements, download sermons, get involved in a journey group, or sign up for events. You can also access today's sermon notes, so download it today. And hey, there's multiple ways for you to give here at Southview. You can either give online through the app or you can give in the giving boxes located directly on either side of the sanctuary. And if you're a guest visiting with us today at Southview, that is not by accident. The Lord brought you here today. We would love the opportunity to begin to connect with you. If you would, please text the word CONNECT to 910-424-1298. That way we can just know who you are, begin to pray for you, and see if there's any specific ways that we can minister to you. 
And church, let's turn our hearts and our affections to Jesus this morning. He is so worthy of our worship. He is alive. Happy Easter. Oh, well, good morning, Southview. How are we? All right. Happy Easter. Happy Resurrection Day. We're so glad that you are here. Easter is a big, big time for us. It's kind of like the Christian Super Bowl. It's a big deal. We love Easter. We do a big weekend. We started Friday night with our night of worship, which was awesome. Can you just real quick give a hand to our band and our tech guys? They did awesome, such a great night, and then yesterday, Saturday, even though it was raining, we had our picnic, had hundreds of people show up, it was such a great time, and that was all led by our ladies' ministry, and then our guys helped with the grill, and they worked tirelessly for that. Could you give them a hand as well? Just thank them for that. They worked so hard for that. Uh, it's, uh, I love this weekend because everyone comes up to me and says, boy, Friday night was great. You did such a great job. And I didn't do anything. So I get to go, thanks. But they did awesome. They did amazing. The whole weekend has been just phenomenal. And then it caps off here this morning with us together worshiping a risen Jesus. I'm so glad that you're here worshiping him with us. I want to ask you to bow your heads for me. I want to begin our time together just in prayer. In Jesus, we just love you. We thank you. We thank you, Jesus, that you are alive. We thank you, Jesus, that you, you, not only are you alive, but you give life to us. I pray, Jesus, today as we worship you, that we would just, with all of our hearts and all of our minds, all of our strength, just lift our voices to you, praising you, Jesus, for your life, your victorious uh, death, burial, and resurrection for us to give us your life. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. Empower our worship here today. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Hey, let's stand, guys. Let's worship Christ together.
worship you And if it puts me in the fire I'll rejoice cause you're there too I won't be formed by fears I hold fast to what is true If the cross brings transformation I'll be crucified with you Come on church Cause death is just a doorway To resurrection life If I join you in your sufferings Then I'll join you in your right With you returning glory With all the angels and the saints My heart will still be singing My soul will be the same
Once again, happy Easter to you all. So glad to have you with us today, worshiping Jesus Christ alive. Um, So for everyone here today, again, uh, Easter is one of our bigger Sundays, one of our higher attended Sundays uh, of the year. And so we got a lot of folk here today. And I know there are a lot of people here for different reasons. Some of you are here today because you've just been a, a, a lover of Jesus for Years and years and years, and, and you, you're just always worshiping Jesus. And then sat, and Sunday, Easter Sunday, just like, yeah, exclamation point. For others of you, you, um, uh, you're just here because it's just sort of what you do. It's just your family goes to church, so you're here. And, and, and then for others of you, maybe you don't attend too regularly, but you're here today. You woke up, you put on a nice shirt, and you came because mom just wanted one nice day. So you're here, and we're glad that you're here. But for, but for all the various reasons as to why you may be here today, I believe every person in this room breaks down, broadly speaking, into one of two categories. And I want to talk to you about that here this morning, okay? Um, when we think about Easter, we think about the resurrection, what this means. The Bible is going to tell us, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 today, and the Bible is going to tell us in 1 Corinthians 15 that there are two groups of people and how we respond to this resurrection message. And so I want to encourage us today, how you respond to the resurrection is the single most important thing of your entire existence. How you respond to the resurrection of Jesus Christ determines not only the rest of your life on earth, but the rest of your eternity hereafter. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 
Let's pick it up in verse 1. I want us to look at the first couple of verses there and see the two groups of people that we're going to be talking about and how two different groups of people respond to the Easter message, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in two different ways and what that looks like. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received... In which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. So, again, I think we can see two groups of people here. The first group of people are those who have truly accepted Christ and it's made an impact in their life. It describes those people there at first. These are people who, look at verse 1, you have received and in which you stand by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the Word. So let's look at those words just real quick. Describing how do we know that you've really been saved? Isn't this an important question? This is an eternal question. How do you know you've actually been saved? I believe this verse tells us how you can know. What does a life look like that's been saved? First it says that you have received the gospel message. Well, what does that mean? So the word received there is the same word used as a groom receiving a bride at their wedding. How did you, if you are a gentleman here and you were married, how did you receive your bride on your wedding day? Did you do that flippantly, haphazardly? Were you like, yeah, yeah, we'll get married, sure, why not, we'll give it a shot? Probably not, right? You didn't do that. You thought very long and hard about this. Like, can I really do this? Am I actually an adult? Can I do this right now? Can I get married? And then when you received your bride as your wife, it then changed your life, yes? I mean, the, the reason that you would consider ending a marriage is if someone married you but then tried to act like they weren't married to you. Like, that would be a problem, right? They keep living like they're single. When you get married, things change. I learned this when my wife and I got married. We were young, we were kids, we were still in school um, and it was end of the semester finals, and I was just stressed about finals. I remember it was a Saturday, and I was up early, and I was studying, and, 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 and Marie came in. She said, take a break. Go play golf. Go play golf. We were very early in our married life. <laughs> just, just get out of here. Go play golf. I'm like, you know what? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm going to do. So I hopped up. Grab my golf shoes, my bag, about 8 o'clock in the morning, boom, I'm out. So I played golf. I played 18 in the morning, ate lunch, played 18 more in the afternoon. I came home. When I'm walking in, Marie's like, where have you been? I was playing golf. Right? And remember, this is before cell phones, right? We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have Life 360 to be able to track everybody, right? Right? She wasn't able to text and go, why are you still at the golf course? And I go, why are you still a target, right? I wasn't able to do that. I said, I'm just playing golf. You said, go play golf. She said, no, 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 no. I sent you out to play married guy golf. You played single guy golf. Right? Those aren't the same thing. And that was the first time I was like, oh, there's a difference. I got you. I, I got you. When you receive a bride, the point is you are to receive them in a very sincere genuine, life-changing way. And that's the way it describes you receiving salvation. 
You don't flippantly just go, oh, yeah, 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 Jesus, cross, death, rose again, yep, yep, got it, check. No, you receive that message in such a way where you take it as the most dear thing to your hearts and it completely changes you. Next, it says not only that you receive it, but it says the end of verse 1, in which you stand. This idea that this truth of the gospel becomes the foundation that you cement your feet into and it is where you stand. You stand there not on your thoughts or your opinions or ideas or what the world says about you. You stand on Christ and on Christ alone. Then look at verse 2. If you receive this and you stand in it, verse 2, by which you are being saved if you have Held fast to the word I preach to you. That word hold fast means to grab on to something and not let go. The idea is this. The only way that you know that you're a Christian, and I need you to hear me. The only way that you know you are a Christian is because you have been so changed by Jesus and you've continued to live changed by Jesus. That's your evidence of salvation. Can I just let you know something? So, as a pastor in the South, and I know not all of you are from the South, you weren't born here, but you got here as quick as you could. We're glad that you're here. But as a, a pastor in the South and kind of the Bible Belt, I know Fayetteville, is, we're sort of the Bible Belt. We're kind of like the hole beside the buckle. Like we're not actually the belt. Like there's like a piece missing that's Fayetteville. But we're kind of in the Bible Belt. So, so the way that pastoring in the Bible Belt is a little weird is that I've got... Hundreds of people who are convinced they are saved because they, when they were eight years old, they repeated a prayer and then got wet. You are holding fast to the wrong thing. You are holding fast to a prayer you prayed when you were a child. The Bible says you're to hold fast to Jesus. And those two are not always the same thing. How you know that you're a believer is that you have received the gospel message of Jesus Christ as the most important treasure of your entire life. You have made that the foundation on which you stand and build your, the rest of the life of your house, the house of your life. And you hold fast to Jesus for the rest of your life. The evidence that you're actually a Christian, I need you to hear me. The evidence that you're actually a Christian is not that you prayed a prayer when you were nine. The evidence that you're actually a Christian is that you still love Jesus and he changed your life when you're 19, 29, 39, 49, 59, 69, 79, 89. That's the evidence. And if you just repeated a prayer and got wet when you were a kid, but there is no genuine evidence of you actually having a changed life, you're not a Christian. You're not a believer. And and again, if you're here, you know there are some sort of gospel nugget things that I throw out every so often, sort of Brad-isms that I throw out to kind of shape and frame the way we think about things. One of them that I throw out often is, heaven is not a place for people who don't want to go to hell. Heaven is a place for people who love Jesus, and they're not the same thing. No one wants to go to hell. That's why you're not going to find that Mother's Day card in a few weeks, all right? It's not a good thing. No one wants to go there, but simply not wanting to go to hell doesn't mean that you go to heaven. 
simply not wanting to go to hell does not mean that you now get to go to heaven. The only people who have salvation are those who have received Jesus as their greatest treasure and built Jesus as their foundation and hold fast to Jesus for the rest of their lives. They are saved and they go to heaven. Is that you? Is that you? And then at the end of verse 2, it describes the other group. Look at the way it describes the other group. So it describes in verses 1 and 2 those who are saved. And then that last little phrase in verse 2. Unless you believed in vain. This is the second group. These are the people who are actually believers. And it describes them as those who believed in vain. So let's unpack that just for a moment. It's not talking about people who don't believe and think Christianity is stupid. And this is where the scary rubber meets the road, and I want you to hear me for the next 45 seconds. Just listen to me very carefully, okay? This is not talking about people who think Christianity is dumb. This is talking about people who would right now at this second stand up and say with all confidence, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe he died on the cross. I believe he was buried, and I believe he rose again, and I believe trusting in him is the only way that I can get saved. People who believe that, who say those words, but it says they believe it in vain. What does that mean, to believe in vain? The word vain means it it has no changing, staying power, right? The word vain is the same word that would be used for fog or mist in the morning. You ever wake up in the morning, it's really foggy, you can barely see in front of your car, you manage to get to work, then when you come out for lunch, all the fog is gone. Why? Because the sun came up and it burned it all away. Because it was just vapor. It was a mist. There was nothing to it. As soon as a little heat hit it, boom, it was gone. And that's the way it's describing many people who believe in vain. There was a time in your life where you went to a church service. And the youth group did a skit about a kid dying in a car wreck and going to hell. And the pastor said, you need to come up front and repeat this prayer, and you did. And praise God, man, if, if you then changed the rest of your life and you were saved, praise God. I just talked to a lady today after the first service who said, you did my daughter's funeral. And I want you to know, I haven't had a chance to tell you this, one of my other daughters who has lived a completely hellacious life got saved that day. Listen, you show up at a time like that when death is in front of you and it actually changes you? Praise God. My fear is for many of us, it didn't actually change you. It didn't actually change you. You believed, but in vain. It didn't actually take root. So I want to ask you, before we jump jump into the rest of the text, I want to just ask you just to kind of put this thought in your mind and ask yourself this. Which camp are you in, in all seriousness? Which camp are you in? Are you someone who has truly and legitimately received Jesus as your greatest treasure? You've built him as the foundation for your life, and you cling to him as your only source of everything. Or do you believe the things of Christianity but just really kind of flippantly and in vain. It doesn't actually change you. In in fact, I didn't do this in the first service, but I'm going to do it now. I'm going to ask you to just kind of bow your heads for a moment. I want to pray over you before we jump into the rest of the Scripture. And I want to ask the Holy Spirit to kind of just bring some clarity to your heart. 
Um, The Holy Spirit does many things, but there are two things for us here today I want Him to do. He'll either convince you that you are in Him, right? He'll, he'll, He'll bring peace and clarity, testifying to your heart that you are indeed a child of God, right? Romans tells us that. Or the Gospel of John says the second thing that He'll do today is convict you of the fact that you're not. He'll either convince you that you are or convict you that you're not. And you need God to tell you that. You don't need me to tell you that. You don't need your friends to tell you that. You don't need you to tell you that. You need the Holy Spirit of God to show you, shed light in your heart to show you where you are with Him. So take just a minute, and I want to encourage every one of you. 2 Corinthians 13 says that every one of us should examine our own hearts in salvation. So I think every one of us needs to right now just set before the Lord and say, Holy Spirit, you show me. Bring peace and evidence. Testify to my heart that I am your child. Or bring conviction to me that I'm not. Lord, I pray that you would do this. I pray that you would bring clarity to our hearts, understanding to us, Lord, that we would receive you if we have not truly done that. That if any of us are foolishly believing in vain, that you would reveal that to us, we would see that, we would turn from that vanity, that foolishness, and we would truly, genuinely receive you as our Savior and our Lord. Jesus, do this in us. We pray this in your name. Amen. So now, what's this gospel message? What is this gospel message that does save us? You see that in verses 3 and 4. Let's look at that real quick. Look at verse 3. For I delivered you as of, to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Real quick, I just want to highlight four things of kind of what this gospel message is. All right, Number one is this. The gospel is necessary. The gospel is necessary. You see that there in verse 3 where he says, I delivered this to you as of first importance. The Bible says that this message is the most important thing in your life. What you do with this message is the most important thing. It is more important than who you marry. It is more important than where you go to school or what your major is or what job you get or do you get that promotion or do you get healed of that disease. It is more important than any of those things. This and this alone is of first importance because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned and rebelled against God. We are all in need of salvation. It is necessary for you. You need to be saved right here, right now. Every one of us in this room, you need salvation. Of first and foremost importance is this. The most important question for you to answer today is, what have I done with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Of first and ultimate importance is this, that Jesus died for your sin, that he was buried in the grave, and that he victoriously rose again on the third day. This is the most important thing. What have you done with it? A second thing you see is this gospel message is thoroughly biblical. Verses 3 and 4 is going to say that he died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And then verse 4, he's going to say that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The Bible teaches this, right? 
In Isaiah 53, the prophet Isaiah, 750 years before Jesus was ever born, prophesied that Jesus would die in your place for your sin. Psalm 22, David, a thousand years before Jesus was born, prophesied that he would die in your place for your sins and be risen again to new life. Jesus himself in Luke 24 tells his disciples, the entire Bible is really about me, guys. I've told you over and over again, again, the point of the Bible is not to be a roadmap for your life. Just simply telling you, do this or don't do that. The Bible is not a roadmap for your life. It's a neon sign pointing to Jesus. If you're reading the Bible is just telling you things to do or not to do, you're missing it. The point of the Bible is to point you to Jesus. This is the gospel message from Genesis to Revelation. Jesus died in your place for your sin and rose again. The Bible's proclaiming this message to you. Have you received it? Third, the, the gospel is sacrificial. You see there in verse 3 again. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Jesus died for your sins. Why did Jesus die? He was sinless. He was perfect. He had no reason to die for himself. He died for you. He died for me. He died for our sins in our place. Have you received him? Do you see that he's died for you? There's this neat story. A gentleman during the Civil War served, came home, and they tried to call him back again to go back out. Uh, However, in the process, they had a mix-up with the records, and another gentleman died on the battlefield, and they accidentally thought it was him. And so they published an obituary saying that this guy had died. And then they realized the mistake and called him up and go, oh, never mind, you're not dead, our our fault. Come back and fight. And he said, nuh-uh, according to your records, I'm dead, I'm not going anywhere. I've already died in battle, according to you, I'm staying home. And this is the whole point of Christianity. Jesus died in your place and took on the punishment for your sin so that when you're faced with the punishment of your sin, you can say, no, 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 he died for me. I get to live because he died. I get to experience the joy and the pleasures of God because Jesus died in my place. The gospel is sacrificial. He's, he isn't just dying just flippantly for the world. He's dying for your sins against God so that you can be at peace with God. And then the gospel is victorious because you see there in verse 4, according to the scriptures, Jesus rose again on the third day. Jesus rose to new life. To, to God, the Father, uh, rose him from the grave so that he could be vindicated as the Son of God and so that you and I can have the hope of our future resurrection as well. Jesus is alive. And then it goes on in verse 5 to describe some of the people that saw his resurrection. And I want to just unpack this just for a moment. Because, again, I think there may be some here in the room that you're wrestling with whether or not Christianity is real. And and I want to encourage you in two things. Number one, um, becoming a Christian does not mean that you have to check your brain at the door. Now, being a Christian is by faith. You're saved by grace through faith. That is just fact. That's what the Bible teaches. You can't get around that. And at the same time, though, the Bible is not devoid. The the gospel, Jesus Christ, Christianity is not devoid of evidence. 
You see, all of these things pointing to the fact that Jesus' claims of who he is are legitimate and true. And so as we walk through this, what I want to encourage you with is this. If you're not sure about Christianity, I want you to just listen to what happened after Jesus was crucified. And then you determine what do you think needs to happen with you in your life as a result of that. So look at verse 5. So 4 again says that he rose from the grave. Then after he rose from the grave, verse 5. And then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So what happens here is the Apostle Paul is sort of unpacking what happened after Jesus died and then rose again. So when Jesus rose again, there was much speculation as to what happened there. There was uh, a rumor that, he, that the disciples had stolen the body away. And uh, as they stole the body away, they told everyone that Jesus had risen from the grave. The Pharisees bribed the soldiers to tell that story. And that kind of became the modern rumor. And it's still even going today. The assumption is, because what happened is this, which you can't get around historically is, there was a man named Jesus... He was executed by the Romans, and then a few days later, his body was not in the grave they put him in. Right? That's historical fact. You cannot go to the graveside of Jesus. It doesn't exist. So the question is, what do you do with that? Some said, well, he had his body stolen. They stole his body away. He died, and they stole his body. Well, here's the problem with this. Look at verse 5 again. He, as Jesus, appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. So the men that they are accusing of stealing the body of Jesus. Here's the problem with that. Every one of these men died brutal, horrific, torturous deaths. Peter was crucified upside down. Bartholomew was filleted alive like a fish. Thomas had Horses tied to his arms and legs and sent in different directions, literally pulling his body apart. John, the apostle John, was boiled alive in a hot oil, but the dude was just too tough to die. I mean, if you get boiled alive in oil, you're like, I ain't dying, you're next level. So then they just put him on a deserted island and left him to die there. So here's my question. If you stole the body, and you know you stole the body, and you know where you put it, and someone is standing over top of you, sharpening the knife they're about to use to fillet you alive, don't you think you raise your hand and say, okay, wait, 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 wait. Gotcha. It's all a joke. We took the body. Let me tell you where it's at. The fact that every one of these men died the way that they did. Again, this is historical record. The fact that every one of these men died in the unbelievable fashion that they did. What do you do with that? Other than the fact that 1 Corinthians 15, 5 is true. And that Jesus rose from the grave and appeared to them. They refused to recant that. They refused to turn from that. They said, no, Jesus is alive. I saw him. You can kill me if you want to kill me. You tried to kill him. That didn't work out great. 
I will not deny him. There's got to be something to that. Then the next one, verse 6. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. He then appeared to 500 people at the same time. Now, another interesting little theory that people have about what happened with Jesus is, well, it was, must have been a hallucination, right? He actually died. He did not rise from the grave. And people just hallucinated because emotionally and physically and mentally they were so just exhausted and they wanted Jesus to be alive. And he promised that he would rise from the grave. And they were so exhausted they hallucinated and just thought he was there. Problem is this. In order to believe that, you have to believe that 500 people all had the same hallucination at the same time. That didn't even happen at Woodstock, all right? I mean, that is some, that, that, that is some real stuff. And everybody's like, ooh, I see it. You see it? I see it. He appeared, and then it even says when he's writing this, look, a lot of these people are still alive. Go talk to them. Go ask them. They're still alive. They can tell you. Yes, he appeared to me. I saw his hands. I saw his feet. I saw his side. He is alive. Then one of my favorites in verse 7 says, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So circle James. Who's James? James is the little brother of Jesus. So here's the story of James. As you read the Gospels, what you find is this. So after, so obviously Mary was visited by the angel, uh, miraculously conceived Jesus. Joseph, visited by an angel, knew it was that. So Mary and Joseph knew the deal. After Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph had normal husband and wife relations and had a whole bunch of other kids. And here's the thing. Those other kids grew up not believing Jesus is who he said he was. Which has a couple of thoughts. Number one, Mom and dad, just because you believe something doesn't mean it magically passes down to kids. They've got to have their own walk with Christ, right? You've got to pray for them to experience Jesus in their own life, not just from you. I mean, if it happens with Mary and Joseph, we are not immune. And so you read the Gospels, and you have stories of James and his brothers and his sisters trying to come and get their crazy big brother Jesus, Right? I mean, can you imagine being the little brother of Jesus? You know how hard that is? Why can't you be more like Jesus? Somebody left the door open. I know it wasn't Jesus. I mean, that had to be hard. And then everybody's walking around constantly. Hey, did you hear about your brother's doing it? You hear about this? You hear about that? I heard he fed 5,000 people with a Happy Meal. You can't do that. Like, what in the world? And so James thought his brother was crazy. And let's be, let's be honest. Any of you have a big brother? Anybody? You got a big brother. All right? All right. Great. You got, a, you got an older sibling. And how many of you are a big brother? Any of you? You're a big brother. Okay. So imagine you have a big brother. They step up here this morning. They say, I have an announcement to make. I am sinless, perfect God in flesh. Bow and worship me. If your brother came up here and did that, how many of you would be able to go... So I got a couple questions. Right? I don't know. Let's just start with the seventh grade. How about that? Let's just start there. Right? I have definitive facts. I still bear the marks on my body. 
that he is not God. Satan, maybe. <laughs> not God. You got James. How do you figure this thing out? James goes from thinking his big brother's crazy, thinking his big brother's crazy, to becoming a worshiper of his big brother and a leader of the church in his big brother's name, telling other people to believe in his big brother, and then one day himself being martyred and killed because he refused to stop saying his big brother was God. How does someone go from thinking his big brother is crazy because he says he's God to personally believing and telling other people, yes, it's true, my big brother's God? How do you go from A to B in the middle? 1 Corinthians 15, 7, Jesus showed up to James after the resurrection. Can you imagine what that must have been like? I mean, even with family drama, and some of you, I get it, we grew up, we got family drama, everybody's got baggage, some of us just carry it in Gucci bags, try to make it look better, right? We all got family stuff. So you got James, right? He thought his brother was crazy, but still loved his brother. Right? He's still heartbroken to see his brother crucified by the Romans, right? He, but, yeah, my brother's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, but I loved him. I didn't want to see that happen to him. So you got you know, James, he's heartbroken. He's at home, just sad for his brother, mourning his brother, sad for his mom that had to lose a son like that, right? He's devastated. He's there at the house all of a sudden. There's a knock on the door. All right, he assumes it's neighbor, you know, bringing over another pasta salad because someone died, right? That's what you do. It's biblical. So, right, James goes to the door, right? He opens it up. It's Jesus standing there. He shuts the back. <sighs> Jesus walks in to his brother's house. Like, hey, touch my hands. Touch my feet. Touch my side. James has been true the whole time. I am the Messiah. I died for your sin. The sin of you not believing in me, I died for that sin. And now I'm risen again. See who I am, James, and worship me. And he does. He becomes a follower of Jesus, a worshiper of Jesus, a pastor in Jesus' name, writes a book of the Bible telling other people to worship and follow and obey Jesus. How do you reconcile that other than the fact that Jesus had to come back to life and appear to him? There's no, it makes no sense other than that. And then the last one I love also in verse 8. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So again, historically, we've got to do something about this. Because historically speaking, there was a man named Saul from a city called Tarsus. Saul was a part of a group called the Pharisees. Uh, they were very devout Jewish men, and they hated Christianity. They saw it as a heresy. They saw Jesus as a blasphemer. They were glad to see Jesus murdered. They thought that ended it. But then people kept worshiping Jesus and following Jesus. And so Saul of Tarsus was given the task of going around the area, finding these early Christians, 
arresting them, throwing them in jail, and demanding that they recount of their worship of Jesus, and if not, maybe even necessarily killing them. This is Saul. This is what he does for a living. He's a terrorist. This is what he does for a living. And we have the historical account of this man named Saul on his way to a town called Damascus to do this same thing. Go to Damascus. We've heard there are Christians there. Find them, arrest them, take care of them, torture them. Do what you have to do. We have to end this. So you have this historical account of Saul leaving Jerusalem, hating Christians and trying to kill Christians. But then he shows up in Damascus loving Jesus, being a follower of Jesus. So again, what do you do with that? How does someone leave one city hating Jesus and hating the followers of Jesus and show up to the next city loving Jesus and wanting to be a follower of Jesus? What do you do with that? Not only that, he goes on from there to be one of the great leaders in the history of Christianity, writing half the New Testament and himself experiencing unbelievable persecution because of this Jesus and ultimately himself being beheaded and killed because he refuses to stop telling people about Jesus. How does that happen? How does someone go from hating Jesus to himself being willing to die for? Well, Acts chapter 9 tells us what happened. As he left Jerusalem and on his way to Damascus, Saul met the resurrected Jesus. Jesus appeared to him. He said, Saul, it's me. I'm alive. And you're persecuting me through my people. I want you to follow me, Saul. As we see this unfolding, what we see is, again, When people come face to face with the genuine resurrected Jesus, it changes them. And my question for you as we think about this Easter Sunday and this resurrection message, have you been changed by it? Look back again at verses 1 and 2. How does it all begin? Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received... And in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. So I, I go back to the question I asked you at the beginning. Which group are you in? Have you received Jesus Christ as your greatest treasure? Have you built him as your foundation? Have you held fast to him for your entire life? Or are you believing in vain? You know, the illustration that I've given a lot in my time here is an airplane. Um, So think about it in a couple of ways. So one of the things about being a pastor is um, sometimes being a pastor feels kind of like being a flight attendant on an airplane, giving the instructions right before you take off. Right, so you've got the flight attendant, and uh, right, they're there up front, and and they don't say it anymore. Now they got it on video or whatever, right? So it's going, and they're doing all the things like accents, mask, you know, flotation device under. If we land in water, use a flotation device. If we land on a mountain, kiss it goodbye, like whatever. I don't know. But here's the thing. 
in all your time traveling, have you ever sat in a plane as they're giving those final instructions and had someone sit beside you with a pen and pad taking feverish notes? What are you doing? Wait, which one are the, where, where are the exits? Where, 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 okay. No. No, you're not. What are you doing? You're sending one last text message, trying to download one last movie from Netflix. Right? You're, they are giving you information that is supposed to save your life, but we're not listening at all. Why? Because we've got so accustomed to it, we know the spiel. We know what they're going to say. We know where the exits are. Thank you. We know mask. Help yourself before you help someone else. Got it. We got it. So we just stop listening. And when I think about that second group, those who believed in vain, can I just chat with you just for a second? I think you've stopped listening because you think you got it. Yet Jesus died buried, rose again, believe in him, Jesus died from his, got it. I got it. It's no different than completely ignoring the life-saving guidance that you're trying to be given. My question for you today, have you genuinely received Christ and been made new? Have you received Christ and been made new? Or do you simply just know the facts, believing in vain? I want to ask you to bow your heads for me. And my encouragement today, my encouragement today is that if God has in any way convicted you of the fact that you have just been believing in vain, Today, you can end that. You can step away from believing in vain. and You can receive Jesus truly as your greatest and most glorious treasure. Jesus, I know that you died for my sin. That you were buried in the grave that I deserve to be buried in. And that you rose again to brand new life. And that you give that life to me. Jesus, You gave your life for me. Today, I am giving my life to you. I need you, Jesus. Save me. Today, I want to encourage you all over this room, do that. Right now at this moment, I want you to pray. Jesus, I don't want to believe in vain anymore. I want to truly give my life to you. I want you to change me and make me new. My life is yours. Lord, I just pray for us here today. What a perfect day to think about this idea of am I believing in vain? This Easter Sunday where most of us are here today and would the fact that we are here give evidence to the fact that we understand these things to some degree. We know them. We believe them to some level. But Lord, I... I think there are many of us who are just believing in vain. Flippantly, haphazardly, not seriously, not actually having it change our lives. I pray, Jesus, that you would 
bring conviction to that, show us that, and we return to you, Jesus. We need you. We need you. Thank you, Jesus. Be with us now as we worship you. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand, guys. We're going to sing. I want to encourage you to sing with us. If you'd like to come forward and pray, you can. If you'd like to talk with someone, my wife and I will be up front here. You're welcome to come talk with one of us or grab someone else that you came with. But let's spend some time here this morning worshiping Jesus, our risen Savior. Let's sing. I want to encourage you in this, church, for those that believe, Revelation chapter 4 It says, and around the throne, on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, here's the point, are full of eyes all around and within and day and night. They never cease to say, holy, holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This is what, if we stand firm in our faith, this is what you and I have to look forward to. Isn't that great? Holy, holy, holy. And for those that have never expressed faith in Christ, I want to I encourage you. It's not that condemnation is coming. Condemnation is already upon you. So I pray that you would hear the voice of God, that he would call you to him and that we would all join together and we would sing the song of the saints. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Let's sing.
Praise God. We love you. Happy Easter. Have a fantastic week. We love you guys. Have a good week.